0: Welcome everybody to the first episode of Burn Your Boats with Matt Lestalia, your host. Thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. So why risk your time listening to this brand new show? There are tens to hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there with content that is proven and that you spend your time with already. So why risk it on somebody that you likely don't know talking to other people that you likely don't know and have never heard of. After all, time is our most valuable resource. It is non-renewable. Once it is gone and spent, it's done and over with. So I encourage you to invest yours wisely. That's why I chose this path, because I've chosen to take advantage of the opportunities that have laid themselves out before me. I met these Phenomenal entrepreneurs and business owners who have these amazing stories to tell. Again, why risk listening to me interview people you likely don't even know? Well, I'm a trained and certified master resilience trainer. I've hosted events introducing and training hundreds to thousands of people so that they can learn and implement these resiliency skills in their own lives. And I do this for active duty service members as an active duty service member in the army, training people who are arguably the most dire need for these skills. I think that I found a way to translate the skills that I've learned to help and assist those in the military to people in the civilian and private sectors through these conversations that I've had with these amazing people. I'm also a student of life. I'm naturally super inquisitive of anybody. I want to hear their story. And I want to know what they're all about. I'm able to combine these skills and package these conversations I've had with these outstanding people in a way that can provide you with the motivation and even a roadmap or a blueprint that you can use to choose yourself to embrace self-determination and control your financial destiny. You are the only one who can elevate yourself from your current state of being to that next level. I talk frequently about personal narrative. What does that mean? It's the story that you tell yourself about yourself. Frequently, subconsciously. You you don't even realize that it's happening. Pay attention. Rarely are we the John Wick, Indiana Jones or James Bond, of our own story. And we're the ones that are controlling it. More frequently, if you look closely, you'll find self-imposed limitations. What can you do about that? What are these self-imposed limitations? Well, the first step to figuring that out is to first identify the fact that you have a narrative. This could be something as simple as, I'm bad at math, so I can't go back to school. Or, I'm not an expert, so I can't start a business. So what do you do after you identify it? After you have found your self-imposed limitations, what do you do? You have to destroy it. You have to get rid of it. But and that, Sure, that's, that's easy enough to say. It's hard to do and it takes daily effort. And so what I'm trying to do is to help you in that journey so you can destroy those self-imposed limitations in your personal narrative and take that next step. I'm inviting you to take this journey with me. Because I'm on it as much as you. Take a walk with me and these people who have been where you are now and who have chosen something different. They've chosen themselves. Without further ado, Burn Your Boats presents in its premiere episode Series Arrhenis. Ciris Ciris Rivas. So, rather than me fumbling and trying to give you her list of accomplishments and and her uh, professional pedigree, uh, I will let
1: her explain her background. Hi, everyone. Um, Thank you, Matt, for letting me be on your show. It's been a long time coming. It has. And Yeah, gosh. Uh, I do a little bit of everything. Um, One of the biggest parts of my business are Access Consciousness, which I'm a certified Access Consciousness facilitator. And that takes me around the country and around the world facilitating classes. And I facilitate Access Consciousness classes online as well. And before adding on Access Consciousness to the different businesses that I have, I was a speech language pathologist, and I'm continue to be a speech language pathologist in schools, and I give, give and provide speech therapy to children and families and schools, different consultations and evaluations online. Um, and for me, they are not really separate. Like that's all beautiful. Of- <laughs> that's
0: absolutely like a huge aspect of this that I really wanted to cover is mm-hmm. is one that it seems like very frequently that when you're talking to somebody who has that entrepreneurial spirit um, that, that is taking control of their own life that it's not it's not one thing. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's there's a passion and a lot of some, sometimes it seems like with you and, and your specific choices and, and what you've decided to do is that it is it's to help people you know it's it's specifically it's not necessarily to provide a good it's providing a service Mm -hmm. right and that's that's an awesome thing and i knowing already a bit about your background like the the bleed over from one to the other because it's like you were phenomenal in one and then you were phenomenal in the other and then like the magic that happened and so we're definitely we're definitely going to get on that but what i want to do before we get there is uh is kind of dive into um Kind of like your history with each, and so yeah. going kind of in the order of the way that things actually happened. So, talk about like your your origins, like what what brought you to speech language pathology. I didn't even know like what that really was, or that there was like a specific profession, or what that was called until I met you, and I, and then I you explained it, and I was like, oh, well, of course course, but that
1: exists in the world. Yeah, exactly. So not <laughs> only did you
0: know know that that existed, but you chose it.
1: Yeah. Um all different kinds of therapies including speech language therapy was in my life from a very very young age because both of my siblings required that. Uh, I'm the oldest of three and my sister who was just born 2 years after me, she was born with spina bifida, which is a congenital disorder that stems from having a hole in your spine. And depending on where in the, in the spinal column it is, it affects different organs. And so for her, it, affects, it affected her mobility and the function of a couple of her organs. And it, she also had hydrocephaly, which is an excessive amount of cerebral spinal fluid in her brain. So it was creating a lot of pressure on her brain, um, which can create a lot of complications. So what they do is they put this shunt which is a device that drains some of that excess liquid so that the brain doesn't have that pressure on it. Um, and within that, there was a lot of different therapies that were involved in her in a couple, the initial years of her life. And then pretty early on, she started stuttering. Um, and that actually runs in my mom's side of the family. It was pretty prevalent, but nobody else received services. It wasn't really a common thing in Puerto Rico, where I was born. And it wasn't really available to seeile my sister. so when we moved to the United States, she was getting therapies and services and follow-ups for all of her medical related um, complications. And then when the stuttering developed, she started getting speech and language therapy. So that was where I was first exposed to it.
0: That's really interesting that there was one the a lot of surgeries really blow my mind with like <laughs> one like the simple, It's, like, the simple nature that went into, like, the creating of the solution of it. It's, like, oh, look, this vein's clogged. Let's stick a balloon in it and blow it up, and, like, we'll make it bigger. Like, what? Oh, and that's something that we can just do? And so with the shunt that you were saying, like, it's, it's like, oh, yeah, well, we just, we need to get away to decrease the pressure, right, of Mm -hmm. the fluid and and get it drained down. Um, But then you have the second and third order effects from that, and so it's even more interesting to me that this. So it's like a a biological, um, like fallout from like there's like there's like a scientific, biological reason that the stutter is happening, right? Is that is that correct?
1: Um, a mix of things. Okay. So there's so it was running in our family. Oh, okay, that so it was already yeah right. So was, um. But then on top of that, she was it would also get triggered by different emotional things going on. So oh, okay. a okay. lot of the you know the stressors my sister was very aware um, and it continues to be of a lot of the different dynamics that a lot of people weren't really willing to talk about in our family. And I think that was one of the ways that it showed up was that frustration and those those stop starts in her speech sure. were actually a signal to her and to us of when there was a lot of stuff that wasn't actually being said. Or that wasn't really moving smoothly in our family. Yeah. Um, and it took her a while to really recognize that. So when there was less stress in our family, when there was less anxiety, when um when we were willing when we were moving through the chaos that was always our lives and continues to be in a different way, she didn't stutter as much.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And did, was this did you guys like pick that up while it was happening? Were you able to identify in time that like Oh yeah, like her stutter has decreased. Like, what is happening in the environment? Were you able to tie those together?
1: In a, at a superficial level, yeah. initially when she was getting this traditional speech therapy, mm-hmm. that was that's part of a lot of traditional speech language therapy and for so stuttering. Is,
0: yeah, I was just going to ask. So, what is what is that?
1: It often talks. It also involves like you speaking slower, pausing more, having okay. a breathier onset because for people who stutter, it's usually the initial parts of their utterances that it's more likely for them to have a disfluency, which is what we call it because everyone has disfluencies where we go um sure. uh I like and we insert words <laughs> we revise it you know it's just when it gets to a certain amount where it's so frequent or when you have maybe secondary behaviors like when your face starts clenching or you start slapping oh. the table to try to elicit Right. For you to get past that. Is that long. like a
0: way, is that actually an effective way that people are able to like snap out of it? No. No. Absolutely so It's just, it's pure frustration and nothing. But nothing they
1: associated after. it, like and there's, maybe there's just oh, one moment okay. where they did that and it did oh, help. Okay. And so they're like, let's do it again. Right. And then it becomes something that they, habitual, mm. that isn't actually really effective. Did, got it. Okay. Because it's not addressing the core issues of what's going on. Um, So a lot of breath support and also addressing the emotionality is part of traditional stuttering therapy. Um, And we did that, and it was effective to a point. And then there was was an aspect of her speech where it just kind of plateaued. Oh, interesting. And so she still had a bit of just fluencies that were... That she was discharged from services, but it didn't really get that last little bit. Mm -hmm. And what helped with that was a lot of the energetic modalities that we started playing around with. But we actually got to the energetic core of it, which was her awareness of other people's energy, which was her awareness of, oh, someone's lying right now. There's a lot of judgment going on. And as soon as she started acknowledging that, like, oh, this isn't my stuff that last bit went away, and she just doesn't stutter anymore. So, at what
0: all. was the what did that timeline look like between the plateau and when those the energies of the relationship? Oh, like a
1: decade, wow, yeah, of just kind of having that so yeah, she at least mild gotten, to
0: moderate, right? So, she, what would you say her level of communication was at, like the peak, like during that plateau? Like, was it was there still very noticeable yes. stuttering? Okay,
1: absolutely. So, like when you say
0: to a level, it wasn't to a very high level.
1: Yeah. I mean, and it depended on the situation, like who she was with and, you know, like what was going on. If she was really stressed out, it would, it would exacerbate her disfluencies. If she was really, if she was really sick or tired, it often makes it so it would ramp up more. Um, And so really noticing that and not making it significant and just being like, okay, this is where you're at. And being patient and not interrupting her was really Uh... key. Because that's another thing that people do when people are disfluent or stuttering is they often try to help them out, and
0: it's not, and that actually not.
1: makes it worse. That
0: that reminds me, it's just of a very stereotypical situation. I remember I was in high school, and I don't, I'm not sure what medical condition this other kid in my class had, but he had the. Uh, The crutches in both hands um, Mm -hmm. and his legs kind of didn't, they weren't able to like walk straight. And so Mm -hmm. he had like a real uh, kind of wandering path in his walking. And so Mm -hmm. he had the crutches and he would walk. And I remember I was outside, it was the end of school or whatever, and he dropped his books. And it was like that stereotypical moment where you're like, oh, I want to be like a good person Mm -hmm. and help this guy out. Mm -hmm. And I go over there and he flipped out. Lost his mind. He was like, "No, I can do it. Leave me alone." And I was like, "I was just trying to help, man." Yeah. But when you actually take that, you take that pause, you take that moment. It's very similar to someone trying to help you finish. You're like, no, "No, no, no. I have the idea yeah. in my head. I'm going to relay it to you. Yeah. Like, I don't need your help.
1: I'm, right. gonna,
0: I'm gonna get it."
1: Well, that and just even asking more and more. And this is what shifted one of my whole practice and all the businesses I play with is really asking what's required here and a lot of times it isn't that. Let's go to yeah, the rescue. Of course. It's it's actually oh, let's just not make it significant or let's give that person space or time or silence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Silence is really powerful. Yeah. Um and playing around with all those different possibilities instead of going immediately into the fixing and saving and helping um it's yeah. been a really big game changer.
0: Yeah. I think that in a lot of areas of life. Even Everything. In just like I can't think of one that... <laughs> <laughs>
1: like, like, you know what I,
0: mean? you know, I need to do? not need to fix. Like, And that's what I tell a lot of guy friends, you know, when they're talking about, like, they'll be complaining about their relationship or whatever at yeah. work. And they like, she came home and she was saying this, that, and the other. I told her, all right, well, if you want to fix it, then go do that. I'm like, that's not what she wants. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't want nobody. And you don't want that either. Yeah. When you come home and you're complaining about a problem from work, you're not necessarily looking, you may you may be neutral yeah you know like i you're not searching for an answer you know mm-hmm. but sometimes you may be more receptive than others to receiving one but it's typically not the reason why i see people are, are doing it it's it's more it's just like venting mm-hmm. you know like i'm just just putting it out there this is a way to to get it off in that way i'm not dealing with it mentally for the rest of the night like yeah. waiting dinner i'm like this motherfucker at work i swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's uh I think there's a lot of power there. There's a lot of power in that and yeah. just and just acknowledging that situation. I heard it in some sitcom where there was mm. like it was like that, I maybe it was even a uh, New Girl
1: mm. and they were no. like
0: they were they were just like, Oh you just have to say I don't think it was that. But uh it was like don't try and fix the problem. Just all you should say, and this was specifically a guy to another guy about a girl complaining about something. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, that sucks. Like, that's it.
1: Oh, that's I think he was um, Bill Burr or something like that. Or it was one. Of, it was a stand-up comedian too. that said that, it. Yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, like, There's yeah. So many no, people. Yeah, that. Exactly, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like,
0: I just listened to Bill Burr on the way over. <laughs> but uh, right, um, but yeah, no, I was like, and but really, like as funny as that is, if you take. That not literally, but you take it in a way that actually like where you're being compassionate. Yeah. You're like, wow, that does suck. Like mm-hmm. putting myself in your shoes, like I wouldn't want to be there. Like I would want it to be this way, but my approach to the problem set, and like and you can you can figure out if it's something that they're interested in hearing, mm-hmm. just by having that conversation, you know, and just just by asking questions. And that's I think something that we fail at frequently as a people is just asking questions.
1: So Yeah, a lot of people just really wanna be validated and heard and so it's like I yeah. hear you. Exactly yeah.
0: Like you I that hear back. you. Exactly. I get
1: that. That's that sucks, like you said. Yeah. Or you know, what I often now with the instead of, you know, what's required here out loud, I don't say, Okay, what do you require from me? But I'll say like, Oh, what would you like me to do from that with that? Mm-hmm. Like what, how can I support you right now? Would you like me to just listen? That's great. Do you want me to give you ideas? Do you want me do you wanna go for a walk and like be mm-hmm. distracted? Like what do you need right now? And a lot of times, before you even ask, it's funny. Now that I've been doing that more and more in the last couple of years, is people don't often even know what they need. No,
0: they have no idea. <laughs> they have no idea. Well, it's because they're they're not. Usually, there, I think part of it has to do with they're not given. They're not giving themselves, and other people are not giving them mm-hmm. the opportunity to have that thought. Yeah, like they're living in the problem. Yeah, and they're not. And so they're either being given solutions by other people, and they're like, "You don't know the nuanced. Like, I could do that, but I know that my boss's personality is X, and my coworkers is Y, and you don't know like their interactions together. All versus the factors, and exactly, considerations, yeah. Exactly. And so like it's so it's very hard to give that kind of advice, like, mm-hmm. is unless you're being really general with it, you know. Um, it's interesting that you said that because what I've done recently with. With people and when they bring up issues, is very very similar. I try to ask a question, and but I've done it more in the uh, like the individual fo- like them focus. Like I wonder what, like I wonder what you could do that would that would make that better. Like what mm-hmm. what change could you make that would like bring you to uh, that to your relationship with this person. Better than you ever thought. It, better than it was yeah. before this problem existed. Yeah. And. Uh, and, and the, but I get you the know, same.
1: You know that I'm receptive to that. But. Especially using access consciousness tools. Which is all about. Being in the question. And that's why it works with every area of your life. And I can use it in my businesses. And with. Interpersonal and everything. Is that. Not everyone. Really wants the questions yet. Like they just yeah. want to be heard. Right. Like. They, and that's why I've been staying cause I, I did that when I was first using access conscious tools. I was like, okay, I'm going to ask more questions, but mm-hmm. some people just want to be heard. Some people just want your presence or they want you to give them a hug or whatever yeah, it is. That's a good point. Um, and, and then if, if I do get that they're willing to receive a question or it's the time for that and, and it would actually be a contribution to them then there's, yeah, absolutely some questions you can ask. And that really plays really nicely with the speech and language. So with my sister, we were constantly asking, and for my brother too, we we're like, okay, what else can we try? What else can we try yeah. that's an intervention? What, How else can we create more ease with her speech, sure. with her health? Because she had eight surgeries the first couple years of her life. My brother had three major ones, and we didn't even want to write his birth certificate. But, like, because we were like, well, he's going to probably die any minute, so why bother wow. kind of a point. Yeah. My brother was born with diaphragmatic hernia which is a hole in the diaphragm where all the organs that were below his diaphragm were up in his chest not allowing enough space for his lungs and his heart to function properly for his lungs to even really grow so they pushed all the organs down sewed up the hole in his diaphragm and he also had a heart murmur which is just like a a small hole in his heart so he had all these major surgeries and he had machines breathing for him and things like that in the midst of all that where we were just like Navigating, is he going to be alive? What, would he, what do we need to do to like keep him alive and functioning? After those first couple years, you realize that he wasn't responding to his name. And so that's how we discovered oh, okay, now that we've gotten through the hurdle of like, you're living, you've chosen to live. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for being here. Thanks for hanging out. We you appreciate know, it. <laughs> so grateful. All right, now, oh, you're not responding to your name. Let's get your hearing checked. And we found out that he had a profound to severe bilateral sensory neural hearing loss. So that means basically there were a lot
0: of words right there. Yeah, I'm
1: gonna break it down. (laughs) So it's both ears, and it involves the inner ear instead of like the bones of the ear. Got it. Um, and it's been amazing because my brother, like he, I was just talking with him last night. Um, all of my immediate family members have taken Access Consciousness classes, and it's completely changed their lives, including my brother. He's he's asking questions about what he's aware of and what he's picking up on from other people and how he can actually hear without having to hear. Like, like what is he perceiving? So without actually having to acoustically hear it. And so, so
0: so are you saying, is is it like sight? Like, is it like reading body language? All of it. it, It's every,
1: in every sense of the word. So he isn't cutting it all off. And one of the things that he realized when he was at the Rochester Institute of Technology, which has the, National Institute of the Deaf there and he was going to school there is that he actually was starting to become more and more reliant on his hearing aids so he's chosen in the last 5 6 years not to wear hearing aids wow. even though he has a profound a severe hearing loss in both ears and that actually has made it so that he hears better
0: which That's is a pretty amazing
1: controversial
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah i don't I, I can imagine a very tough road trying to or even just just proving that in the whole like in the science realm of like the double blind uh you know all those studies testing things. yeah in order to to prove that this is a legitimate way but the cool thing for the individual specifically your brother yeah. and this is that like i don't need it i don't need those studies. i found that this works right and so and he tried it out
1: he was. He would be the first person to say that he wouldn't recommend it for everybody. Sure. It's like he's not saying that, like, oh, everyone this is just the toss cure. it right, yeah. No, he's not that person. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it a lot easier for me to to be his sister. Um, but he did try it out for a good six months, and he noticed that he was willing to receive information by like the body language that you talked about. Um, his awareness, he was able to like pick up on the vibrations more from the ground and, wow. and things like that. Instead of being like, what, really focusing on just his ears mm-hmm. where he was getting information. And so, oh, it's not, oh, my hearing aids are off today. So I can't hear. Well, where's the question in that? So he was starting to be like, okay, well, what could I pick up on and what can I receive? And how can I communicate without only relying on this one thing to yeah. do that? Sure. And he wasn't, he was already not doing that, but it was really for him to ramp it up even more. Okay. And because my brother, I remember at a young age, um, we used to tease him that he has like 95% accuracy in lip reading. So we were like, you should work for the government. Like, this is amazing. <laughs> like, you know, um, cause we have conversations without actually being able to hear each other audibly oh, across wow. the room. Wow. Like and that. and we started doing that when we were kids and we still do that. So, it's
0: almost like, like when kids, like family members come up with like their own like... Language. Uh, language. Yeah. They start using like pig Latin and stuff. Like, nope, don't need it. Yeah. Just the lips.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and also we fill each other's sentences and, sure. and those kinds of things too. But it's been really revolutionary for him because he felt he was choosing something that was empowering him yeah. more. And that's what happened with my sister as well is when she realized, oh, wow, like I'm picking up on so much other things that aren't mine... Like, and I'm not wrong. This is actually a gift that I was stuttering. It was actually just information that my body was giving me. Like, that for both of them, it's been revolutionary for their lives. And now they're more independent in ways that nobody in our family ever thought that they were going to be. They live on their own. They have relationships. They have friendships. They go out and travel and things like that. And no one in our immediate family, and definitely not in our extended family, um, even more so, thought that they were ever going to have those types of lives, and right. it's been it's been beautiful to see.
0: It's really amazing to see what you can choose, and this kind of goes to like the nature of these interviews. And mm-hmm. so it's really cool that we're able to get that from other members of your family that haven't even necessarily been uh, like business starters and stuff like that. Like this, the the idea of choosing you essentially mm-hmm. um, is really the real base of what i'm trying to do here and so seeing that um you can you can choose the power to not let your life be limited Mm -hmm. by other people's perspectives Mm -hmm. and that's and that is what my initial motivation was with business is that a lot of people get this feedback from the world around them from the people that love them and a lot of the times it seems like you're getting negative feedback about taking risk about, about making that choice and what risk is perceived in some people's minds and versus others. Um, but, and it's like, it's like out of love, it's like yeah. out of love. I want you to not fail. So don't <laughs> risk.
1: Yeah. And I'm
0: like, well, how can I achieve everything that I've ever imagined? And beyond that, how can I expand without that risk? Yeah, and so that's something that I wanted to talk to you about. And so I wonder, has did, did any of that play a role, or how did I would imagine that this probably came into play more towards um, your shift? So ju- just yeah. to go back to like your your career in speech language. Mm-hmm. So when you first, for what what are your what is your academic? Let's talk you about for a little bit. <laughs> so what what are your credentials?
1: Um. So I'm a speech-language pathologist. I got a a dual master's degree. So I basically was getting two master's degrees at the same time because I was a masochist. Um, (laughs) And it was also past tense (laughs) is very important. Very key, key emphasis on was. Um, uh, And uh, in a dual language, a dual master's degree in speech-language pathology and learning disabilities. Um, it, was, it was, yes, I joke about the masochism, but it was also I get now an awareness on my part of how they overlap, that I knew that very quickly in education and beyond that, that there is going to be these cases where kids would have speech and communication difficulties, and then they were going to have academic difficulties. Absolutely. And I wanted to be able to, even if I didn't choose to do academic remediation, which is where you address like the math and the science and the reading and writing yeah. skills of a child or an adult for that matter, um, that there would be this, I wanted to be able to know what tests that they were going to be using and the lingo. So if I was going to be collaborating with other professionals that were handling that, I, I had that platform to go off of.
0: It's very powerful to be able to communicate with those people that are able to make changes and to be able to speak their language. It gives you instant credibility in the conversation.
1: It really helps immensely. And then on top of that, I also knew that there were a lot of um, families, because I'm bilingual in Spanish and English, being born in Puerto Rico, and I wanted to make myself available to those families who might not know the jargon, like that, like that I know, and be able to translate it and make it palatable to them if the professionals that they are working with that were doing these assessments or were working with their children didn't speak Spanish. And that... Right. And that is exactly what ended up happening when I was working in the Chicago Public Schools is I was translating a lot of the meetings. Like I'll, I'd be one of the few people in the team, so in the quickly, multidisciplinary team, that spoke Spanish. Okay. How
0: quickly did that happen from... So where did you go to school?
1: Um, I went to Northwestern University okay. in Evanston, Illinois. The Big Ten, like we were talking yeah. about earlier. <laughs> I went to not even a full football game. I know, it's horrible. <laughs> but I still love Wildcats, really. <laughs> Well and,
0: and so there's a lot of courage right there. You just, you're willing to acknowledge that. <laughs> I
1: tried, I really did.
0: Turns out uh, you actually went to school to get educated.
1: Yeah, well there's learning that happens at the football field, I'm sure. I'm sure. And you know, I have friends that were cheerleaders, and uh, both male and female cheerleaders, and that, um... They were on the team and everything. And there's a lot of learning there. It just wasn't my jam to be in the blistering heat or the bitter winter yeah, right. for five plus hours. I can't do it. Um, got things to do. But here's yeah. the thing is that, like, at the school, it was amazing. I went there and uh, I went, I continued on there for grad school. And, and it was one of the few places in the country that had this particular dual master's program. Oh, I think wow. it was maybe, like, one of three. Yeah, running. that's kind of, i
0: got to imagine, that's, that's slim pickings. Yeah.
1: So, I was really, really grateful for that. that and you I was were already living in that.
0: Chicago at that time,
1: right? I was, well, Evanston's a suburb of Chicago, right. so I was living in Evanston oh, so for were, undergrad okay. there. But
0: prior to going to school, did you have to move to go to school? Yes. Okay. mm
1: mm-hmm. okay. I was moving, well, from the suburbs of Chicago. Okay. But yeah, you were still relevant, the Chicago, relatively area. local. So, yeah. that's
0: amazing. Yeah, had a school that offered that
1: mm-hmm.
0: pretty close to home.
1: Yes, yes. That's, that's awesome. And I was looking at schools outside of the state, but I ended up picking um, Northwestern. I'm really grateful that I did for multiple reasons. But from that point, from going to finishing the bachelor's degree there and then doing the dual master's program, all of that was like six years. So okay. four years for bachelor's, two sure. years for the master's degree. Um, and then I went right into like – jumps immediately into working in the schools. Like, I okay. finished in August, and I started in August. And
0: did you, wow. <laughs> and so when you started, you went into the public school system? Yeah. And you were working with, you're working with young children, right? Mm-hmm. And so what, like, what grade and age level was um, this?
1: It was preschool through third grade. It was one of the schools that I was working in, and then the other school, that I only had a few kids there, was a middle school, a charter school. Just
0: so happy. People like you exist because people like me can't do that. Oh, I love (laughs) the little ones. That's great. I love my little ones.
1: (laughs) That's real talk.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but all of the little ones, and especially like the patience that's required to do what you do, because it's not just speech language pathology. It's not just helping kids that have a stutter. You're working with kids with special needs.
1: Yeah, all different kinds. Yeah, you have
0: a, a child who has is on the spectrum for autism Mm -hmm. and as, and you're working within through speech. And so it's, you can't just go in there like, well, I have these tools and these exercises that we can do to, to work out your stutter. It's like you're working through a lot.
1: Yeah. You know what what, though? It's interesting you say that because even in the beginning, it wasn't the speech therapy part. That was the challenge.
0: Right. Okay. And and
1: I had, I, one Northwestern's program is phenomenal. So it was very, it prepared me a lot. That's great. Um, on top of that, though, it was very much—it was more the bureaucracy. It's more the adults and the paperwork. That was that exactly was... what
0: I was looking to, to see <laughs> next. Is like it's not even really going there. And me, I can say openly, I've leaned very hardcore libertarian, and so I, as much as I want, I want to dive into that, and, and we will. <laughs> <laughs> um, my my line of questioning was is to figure out like what were the biggest problems in like, and between both the bureaucracy and just, and and not so much as a problem as a child, but also the, um, just like the, the toughest case mm. you, that you dealt with, like, and that you, that you saw turn into a success story. So both of those, whatever. I think order those are like want. five questions in <laughs> yes.
1: one. So pick,
0: pick as you will. Yeah.
1: Well, with my, with, you know, with all of that, I'm so so grateful for my siblings um because we I was oh, in meetings speech. with them. Yeah. I I got to see how a lot of my 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 parents weren't educators themselves. They were both teachers. If they weren't well versed in the system and all the lingo and what their rights were, I don't I'm not sure where my siblings would be right now. That's they were advocating for them constantly.
0: Yeah.
1: Um and so
0: and I So what what ways were Came up as like the challenges where they had to advocate, where they had to go in and so who were they, who were they going and talking to, and what were they having to advocate for?
1: Okay, so we're gonna add like two or three more questions yeah, to yeah. the pile. Yeah, okay,
0: yeah, we're gonna do it. I'm, I'm gonna a, try to remember. I remember the
1: rest of it. Okay. <laughs> no, I love this. So, um so, and this actually, I'll, I can piggyback off to how mm-hmm. what my experiences were professionally as well. So, I I was very cognizant of how a lot of parents feel very overwhelmed in these situations. And they they walk into just even, oh, let's consider what's going on with your child before even decide if we're going to do an evaluation by all these different professionals. So that's like the first step, kind of like a record review of what's going on. Um, The teachers are there and maybe like a social worker and a case manager and me if there's communication difficulties. Um, And so everyone has
0: their their files that they have on this child.
1: Yeah, or they or they don't have anything and they're asking the parent all these questions to okay. see what's going on. So they're asking the parent and the, and and the teacher happens,
0: questions. This happens when an issue has been identified with yeah. their ability to be educated. Is that
1: it has to have an educational impact when okay. it comes to the school model. There's medical models, there's mm-hmm. different models, there's rehab model, um and there's the met there's like in hospitals it's a whole different thing too. So in the schools, it has to have an educational impact. And usually a speech-language pathologist, it's either that or like a, like a physical therapist, occupational therapist, and us. We're like the gatekeepers for the academic. Okay. So if they've been having motor difficulties, sure. how do they navigate the school space? Right. If they're falling down and they can't go up and down the stairs, things like that. If they can't navigate the desks um, for occupational no, those therapy.
0: Things that you don't even... Because instantly my head goes to like test-taking and, Mm-mm. like, ability to, like, read and see what's on the chalkboard. Can they get in the class? Yeah, can no, they but get like, out you're the talking class. about, like, <laughs> the, the minute details mm-hmm. of just existing in a school.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How do they get to the school? Like, do they need a bus? Um, can they get, Do they have a ramp? You know, things like that. Yeah. Accessibility. And then for occupational therapists, it's the sensory difficult The, the way that they hold their body in space. Um, and also the fine motor tasks of holding pencils and crayons, holding onto spoons if they're feeding themselves in the school, um, you know, how they're, how they can do that. So a lot of those, those precursor skills, and then also the communication, are they talking, are they yelling and screaming instead? Are they, can they point, can they follow a point where those three of the three of us are often like those gatekeepers to then see, all right, if these aren't really in place, then it's a lot harder for them to have access to the the academic yeah. and like concepts. There's only a,
0: so there's a certain level where it's just not going to work. Like if you can't, I gotta imagine if you if you're having a hard time managing stairs, mm-hmm. uh, being able to stay at a desk, or and specifically you said like being able to like hold a spoon and actually be able to like feed yourself or like yeah. consume. So you have on the nutrients own, you need to right. then.
1: Have the attention yes. and gotta, energy yeah. to cap to like pick up on this information that's coming at you from the teacher, yeah, and your and your fellow classmates because you're learning from the classmates too.
0: And then if you require that additional attention in order to accomplish those basic things, how much is that taking away from the other students? Like if the teacher is required to do that, mm-hmm. you know, so I can see how that could get very complicated very quickly.
1: That so. So that was what was going on with my siblings is um, my sister, she had physical therapy, occupational therapy. She had braces on her legs. She had a walker at one point. she Sometimes she had a wheelchair. And as she got better and better with her motor skills, she went from wheelchair to walker to braces. And now she, and then to smaller braces um, and on her feet and legs. And so uh, that was all these considerations. And then she also had speech therapy. So your parents, your, these parents will come into these meetings and they have, you know, a football team at talking at them. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's and it, overwhelming. it can be, it really can be. And even for my mom and dad who were, you know, educators, it was a lot. So one of the things that, that I took upon myself when I was start, first starting off is to be that person that was speaking to the space of possibilities between, the parents and all the professionals and not just because a lot of times I was translating for the bilingual families but even if it was a monolingual family I would I would stop everybody and be like all right let's wait let's pause mom do you have any questions
0: that's great
1: hey how many you, times like, does that <laughs> does that
0: event occur without somebody like you being there
1: yeah, because they'll just like they'll just, just talk and talk and this. talk, yeah. and it's like they're just trying to get through the information. It's like you're not actually being no, 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 no. present. What's,
0: what's the, <laughs> and that's another thing. What's the purpose of what we're doing? Right now? Like, are we are we looking to check the blocks? Do we already have the end state in mind, or are we actually trying to figure that out together? Are yeah. we trying to affect? Or are we effectively communicating mm-hmm. this information to the parents? Yeah, you know, in a way that they understand because. I know being in the military that there's like, if you're trying to talk to somebody about <laughs> military stuff and you want, you and it just goes back to the jargon conversation yes. we had earlier. Like you want to, you can spit jargon. That's one of the things that I think they actually teach you when you're getting out. Is like, lose the jargon? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't, you cannot, you have to find a way all to the acronyms. And- exactly. Mm-hmm. And so the same thing, these parents are going in there and you're, you're then as a parent, you're communicating with these people about this topic for the first time potentially ever Mm -hmm. and these this cast and crew of people that's what they do yeah and so that's great (laughs) that you were there to be able to just actively step in and Mm -hmm. take force a pause and did you see did you see a lot of parents like
1: regroup oh my gosh the level of relaxation and gratitude because they would instead and that's the other thing too Then instead of trying to like be like, who's talking to me and all these different yeah. things. They would just be like, I'm just going to look at her. Yeah. And yeah. then if I need to glance every once in a while at few people, it'd be like, they kind of use me as like a touchstone to be like, like sometimes they tell me like they gesture or they'd, I'd see something in their face that would let me know, okay, I need to stop everybody again so that they can ask for clarification. Sure. So that they can, can, you know, we can go further into what the implications of what we're talking about are, you yeah. know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um. And so, let alone all of the emotionality that can come up for parents. Oh goodness! Like, like
0: this is—it's one of the most significant points in their and their children's life.
1: For some is of it them, like, it's like life and death because yeah. if you—if a child is choking or aspirating on the food, and they're like, "I don't want my child to choke on food," but I also like them to have the nutrients that they need to grow yes. and learn. Wow. And so they get really... And then there's this place where, like, they can often start blaming themselves mm-hmm. for, oh, like, I can't tell you how many times a parent will be like, is there anything that I did that would have caused this? Is there, you know, like, did I do something wrong?
0: I, I love the idea of, like, self-ownership, you know, in that regard as a parent. That like, it's interesting because I would anticipate hearing almost the opposite of parents, mm-hmm. like, reach like like lunging out at the staff and like, what did you do to my kid? And so I think... Not the, in these. I mean, and yeah. more,
1: maybe more typically developing kiddos. Right. Um... Right. But for a lot of them, sometimes it's just a surprise. I didn't realize that they were behind or delayed in this. And so that's Mm eye-opening. Because they don't have – it might be their first kid or they might not really get what the expectations are for school. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of parents that I've worked with where their educational level is very low themselves. So they think their children are rock stars because they can – they can do the basic things, right? Um, and they're all a gift. It's just a matter of like actually educating the parents of what the child requires skill wise and to succeed in school. Yeah. Um. And then being like, you know, these are the amazing things that are about your child. These are things that are right about them that are wonderful that are a gift, and we're going to use those yes. to then work on the things that are more challenging for them. And so continue to frame it that way. Like I, from the beginning, I was always looking at okay, what's right about your child, and making sure that the parents sure. aren't only hearing the negative, yeah. because a lot of times that's what also happens in these meetings, is that, and they they actually now have workshops just training people to do this, where don't look at only the weaknesses, like really start off with all the strengths yeah. of the child and, and of the person that you're working with. Well, that can really, when you have limited time with these schools, and you're having all these evaluations yeah. and all these things, sometimes they don't, focus on that enough and they go into everything else. More. They're like,
0: let's just get the problem out there, let's yeah. get it knocked out, this is what we're gonna do to get it fixed.
1: And a lot uh, of times so. it's it's really beneficial to not just do it in the beginning, to be revisit yeah. The rightness of your child and you as a parent throughout oh, the, the meeting.
0: It's it's <laughs> the concept of the what is the compliment pancake or compliment sandwich or whatever.
1: I haven't it's, heard of that. What is so, that?
0: It's like if you're if you are correcting somebody. Uh-huh and you're concerned. They're the type of person that's that doesn't take kindly to that.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: that you you start off with a compliment. Start off with like, hey, listen. When you're doing this, when you're like sending these reports or whatever, like you you're doing fan. Like this is great. I'm glad that you're sending it to these people because mm-hmm. these people are the ones who really need to know it. And so the fact that you know that's like that's awesome. That's great. Um, when you're sending it. If you, could, if you could just change the format to this, that would, be, that would make it a lot easier for everyone to understand, which is the corrective criticism. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then you bring it back, and then you add another one at the end. Um, another compliment. Yeah, another compliment. So that way you're starting it off with like, I guess. hey, I'm broaching yeah. this.
1: Mm-hmm. You're doing
0: good things. There's some things we can do better. But listen, there's there's still other stuff that you're doing really good too. Like I appreciate the effort. So they walk out with so the last thing exactly, the first thing. Like yeah. you're, you're breaking it, you're breaking the ice kindly, <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah, and then you're and then you're sealing the hole back up like in a, in a in a positive way. And So yeah. it maintains that professional relationship. Mm-hmm. It doesn't leave them feeling, you know, less than,
1: mm-hmm. and just like no,
0: it's just. So I remember the first time I heard about that and I was like, I'll play and I have used it in all Constant. my goodness.
1: I, I didn't know that was a name for it, but I yeah. use that all the time. Yeah. So I'm going <laughs> to totally, I'm, I'm totally going to name that now and like, acknowledge that. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to remember the other question. So some of the most difficult aspects of my work um, with the speech and language therapy is, is actually the paperwork because it takes a lot of time away from yeah. the direct service. Uh, and even when I moved from working in the Chicago public schools to then working in home-based therapy and then, and then choosing to go on my own, which I know you wanted to talk about, like that path yes, and, that, and like absolutely. the questions that I asked and the choices I made to go there. Um, and with all of it, it's healthcare and healthcare yeah. is a lot of paperwork. Yeah. Um, and especially with the Chicago public schools and the home base, which was early intervention, which is state run. It's there's it Medicaid involved, so you're having to prove all these that things that you're what doing. What I
0: was going to ask is like, is this as a lot of the payment for your type your type of services is it insurance that would take care of it?
1: Um, when I was in the schools, it's it's Medicaid, at least in Chicago. In Savannah, it's not Medicaid, but it's still state run. Okay. So each place is different, each setting is different, um, and then. With, like, my own private clients, it can be a combination of, like, oh, they might have private insurance or that right. I just have them send it to the private insurance on their own. Like, I don't accept private insurance. Okay. Um, but then I also just uh, some people pay me direct out of pocket. Oh, wow. So it's a combination. Or, and that's
0: okay. You can do that. Yeah, absolutely. I just have to are, be very clear. Right.
1: And I can't change my rate, like, as to what I submit for all is different. That's fraud. So, like for everybody, I say this is my rate, and then depending on the system, it gets addressed in different ways.
0: Okay. And so, are you do is, is that happen through like a centralized system for health healthcare? or is it like like who are you when you're talking about submitting? I'm, I don't i don't even want it to be that way i'm just
1: curious <laughs> but, you mean there's like to be cohesion and for it to be effective and like yeah, so, have everyone be on the same page yeah. and, oh no
0: <laughs> no for something as you know now the minute, minute and, and not important
1: is health as, yeah, yeah. As health, health, yeah, care health and, and, isn't a big deal yeah. no. um but each each system, like if it's school, it'll be different and it's regulated by a certain entity of the government and things compared to hospitals, compared to clinics and private practices. But as a speech language pathologist, we have an overarching like national governing body called the American Speech Language and Hearing Association. Okay. And so it'll it'll have its own policies that are national that help, but it doesn't have anything to do with how payments are actually given or not. Interesting. It's more about like the ethics. And okay. the, the yeah. scope of practice okay. and what how much training you need to actually be certified and licensed in all these different states and things like that, and it'll tell you some information about each state, but each state has um, different policies on how people get paid and and all of that so
0: and so then there's different are there different requirements to be able to actually perform those you know in that profession and then when you move state to state. You have to get credentialed in the next state, are there individual state credentialing, or is it like once you graduate and you get your degrees, you can go anywhere and just.
1: So there's we have a national like um, certificates of competency that we do the CCCs. Um, I forget one of the Cs right now, but like that's a national license that we have. Okay. So that's applicable to all the states in the United States of America. That being said, we also have to get a state license for any state that we work in. So if I am, I live in Georgia right now, um, as you know, and so I have, if I'm practicing and seeing kids that are in Georgia, I need to be licensed in Georgia. Okay. Even though I first got my, my license in Illinois, I still maintain that one, Okay. but the Illinois one does not apply to me seeing kids in Georgia.
0: What is it? reciprocity or whatever there or
1: whatever. is reciprocity in the sense that it's faster if i already have a license to oh, okay. get approved in georgia so i don't have to start process. from scratch Got it. Okay. thank goodness <laughs> my god um there's already enough paperwork but um but it is an initial acknowledgement like oh you've been further vetted and okay. so you can see kids that whose bodies or patients whose bodies are actually living in the state of georgia And then I see kids in Colorado as well right now. So I had to get a a license for Colorado because the rigor for each state, their criteria for certain things, like how many hours of continuing education units are required for each state is different. How frequently you need to renew is different.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's significant.
1: And so keeping track of all of that. Yeah. But it's that's the license part is actually not as big of a deal. It's more the day-to-day paper.
0: So when we're breaking down like, your daily or weekly, like, percentages, if you ballpark it, um, what, what, how would you break that down as, like, how much you're spending on paperwork versus how much time you're actually interacting and providing that, that healthcare service to the child?
1: So, it's funny you should say that, because the paperwork and all of the, like, difference between actually being able to provide quality services... And all of the rigmarole <laughs> of, the, of the system was a big factor in me actually deciding to leave the Chicago Public Schools and change and play around with different settings. And then after a couple of years, then going out on my own and, and doing my own private practice and incorporating and things like that uh, in the schools, it was at least... Gosh, let's say I'd see kids for like five, six hours in a day, probably more, and then consult with teachers, and then I have to document every interaction um, with all this information. Which I'm a documentarian fiend; like, I love documents. So I have no problem with that, and I get why we have to, why we had to do it. And yet, it would t- easily take me another hour or two. So, you know, if you do the math, it's about like twenty percent of my. 20% of the time of the direct services that I was doing for paperwork stuff so. right. and then you extrapolate that over the course of a full week And that's not that's just the direct provision and consultations. That wasn't even evaluations When you do evaluations, you might do an evaluation direct time for like an hour or two and then you spend about triple that Writing up the report. Oh, wow so it's and scoring all the protocols and things yeah. like that um So for me, that was a really big factor. And I remember when you were talking about like, oh, you know, some of the challenges of of working in in speech and language pathology. Well, it also really depends on your choices. Um, I took on, and I continue to take on some of the more challenging cases. So if you have a case where it's simply just, you know, articulation, where it's the sound production or like R's and L's and S's and things, where, or you're just taking on um, stuttering in a more mild or moderate sense, and not the more severe level of stuttering, where there's all these other like tics and and body things that are coming up with them, and emotional um, aspects of it with anxiety and depression and whatnot. Or if you're, you know, you have a, a kiddo or a, a, an adult even that is that is kind of just looking at only one area of their life and it's really just communication and and there's not this comorbidity or coexisting diagnoses with other things like cerebral palsy, autism, ADD, ADHD, um, if they have like other factors in their life like poverty and neglect and abuse. Uh, I, remember, I was a masochist, (laughs) so I would take the cases that had as many of those considerations as possible. <laughs>
0: Stack it up. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and at first it wasn't it wasn't me choosing it in a way that I thought I was consciously choosing it, but by choosing to work in the Chicago public schools right out of grad school, that's part of it. And it was it was great and I'm so grateful I chose that because now anything that comes to me, I know how to handle it. Cause even within the first year, it was my caseload was about a third of it was profound to severe kids with autism that were like preschool age. And then a third was a, where there are a lot of children that had um, learning disabilities in addition to communication difficulties. So I was collaborating very intensely on a weekly basis with the special education teachers. And then a third of it was probably like any hodgepodge of stuff where there were like chromosomal disorders Like, where you can't, they don't even have a name for it. It'd be like HQRX1. And you're like, let me look that up because (laughs) no one (laughs) knows what that is. Um, Except maybe the doctor that created it, like, named it, like, back in 1923, you know. Um, And and so it was this mix of things. And then overarching all of that about mm, probably 80% of my caseload, if not more, and it would fluctuate year by year, were children with dual language learning or they would be English language learners, as we call it. Uh, so even if they were born in the country, they're still learning English. Like still, That's still not the dominant language at home. Right. Or it's not spoken at home at all. And I was really grateful because I am a language geek. So, like, I <laughs> loved <of> it. <laughs> kind of fitting. <laughs> it, it's, it's part of why I was like, oh, I could totally do this as a yes. career. Because... I love languages and different cultures and in my, in the school that I worked in and the Chicago public schools, it had 44 languages represented wow. in the school. Wow. And so I get to hear languages, all these different languages all the time and also got like very direct experience navigating all of the different cultural components of, of special needs and special mm-hmm. co- abilities, how that's being, how it's seen in other countries and then they come in how for many parents their their primary like their priority when they come in isn't about the speech and language it's getting food and getting the services because they're african refugees or God. they're coming they're they're political refugees you know um they didn't even have this as a as a possibility in the countries that they're coming from um or they're dealing with you know trauma from war and I <laughs> these.
0: Their hierarchy of needs, they're yeah. not at that... Yeah, Maslow's not, not exactly, <laughs> hierarchy of Exactly, needs. yep. They're, they're focusing on the those top tenants, you know. Yeah. It's just like, we have a We have a,
1: we have roof, a roof. Yeah. Head,
0: right? <laughs> Water. Like every, like, every night. Indoor plumbing. Yeah.
1: Whoa, it's yes. huge. Thank you. So yes. grateful. Um, so looking at that and then actually acknowledging it and, and from their parents and being like, okay, I get that this is where you're coming from. And let me know how I can support you as you're navigating that while also knowing that for me, my role is for, to communicate what's going on with your child to you
0: yeah.
1: while knowing that this is you have a bunch of other considerations in your life and for them to be more successful in the school. So it's one less thing for you to worry about. So really framing it as like it's the benefit to the kid sure. now and in the future. It's the benefit to the parent and the family now and in the future. And let's all work together in whatever way we can so it's not like it's it's like you know what you just need to suck it up, mom, because yeah. this is what's important. It's like that's not really gonna work, um, and it's not very honoring of anybody for me to do that. No,
0: but it's, un- it's yeah, like you said, it's not to work. It's not
1: effective. Yeah, it's not. You know?
0: And so, and so is would you do you think that those are some of the, the the dynamic of the parents? Would that create the more difficult um, children to work with, like versus the actual? issue that the child is having
1: yeah was,
0: was it more difficult to overcome when there were problems with the parents versus like the most difficult speech impediment or condition that you ran into i guess i mean it's entirely different problems but there
1: it's it's kind of like i can have i've had cases where like no one had any hope for a kid
0: like, right. at all. Like they
1: were just like, let's just see if we could just get them to do this. I wouldn't have even
0: considered that as being an issue that you would mm-hmm. have to encounter.
1: Like, let's just coast. And let's just, like, get in, get out. Yeah. A student, like you, and this is the message that I'm hearing from the other therapists that are seeing the child. Right. And so then I come in, and I'm ready to play, like, and yeah, I'm ready to yeah. talk. And this is actually more on the home base, because I got to see and interact with the families and the parents more when I was doing home base, which is part of why I shifted from the schools to the home, because I was like... I really want to talk to the parents more and get in and see what's going on in the home because a lot of these kids would come in and within a couple of months, I was like, you don't need services anymore. So if you had gotten it in early intervention, we probably wouldn't even have needed it in the school. And so you would have been able to hit the ground running a lot faster when you came here for preschool or kindergarten. So I was like, let me go to where it starts. Oh, it's in the home. It's with the parents and with the daycares or whatever that they were in. How long did you spend in
0: the schools before you made that shift? Five years. It was that, that thought process that you were just discussing, was that the primary motivation? Like you saw that the problem could be more effectively addressed if you got out of the schools and went straight to the homes?
1: It was multiple. There was, the, there was that big picture idea of that. Like, okay, this isn't really effective. Let me get to, the, like, to where it all begins. And then plant the seeds there so that there may be less for us to waste time in these meetings for kids that don't even really need services for that long. Like, because then you have to meet again to like discharge yeah. them and all that stuff. It's just a waste of resources and time. Actually, yeah. And, but it was also yeah. that yeah. I personally, on a personal note, I was chronically sick and I was chronically in pain and I was so stressed out. And I was the first one in the school and the last one out and I was still taking stuff home. And I was like, this isn't really sustainable. No. And I was seeing that my caseloads were getting larger and larger and larger year by year. And yet, the, the demands on me and my colleagues were getting more and more. Right. And we were giving the same amount of, like, there's more time or resources to do the things that were being asked of us. No matter more, how more, hard you're
0: working, how successful you are, it's not it's not reducing the number. Yeah. You know, it's not like you have 100, and if you work really hard this year, you're going to get it down to 25. Nope. You know, it's That's like, not no, how it next year, it'll be 125. Yeah. Regardless of how good it is that you did
1: and there was there was less staff, and then you're seeing it in the teachers too. So they went from having teacher assistants to having more students and no teacher assistants. Oof. So it's just it's just pervasive throughout. And I was like, this isn't really gonna work for me personally, and I would make such a huge demand of myself to provide quality services that I couldn't. I couldn't look the parents in the eyes in the same way that I was when I initially started being like, "I got this. We're catching it early. We're in early childhood school. It's remember, it's preschool through third. Right. So like, don't worry about it. Like, it's not. Too, it's never too late. And especially because we're we're this is just preschool, kindergarten, yeah. first grade. No worries. We got this. And over time, when I was seeing that the service quality was going down because I was having bigger and bigger groups of kids in my group sessions. Um, and they were getting less practice each individual. Kid. And I was just gonna
0: say, is, that, is it? Did it really boil down to like there are too many kids mm-hmm. for you to effectively treat? Like yes, I'm seeing more. Yeah, it's great that more children are being enrolled and the problems are being addressed. Yeah, but we can't give them. It's like the same idea with the teachers and the number of kids in the classroom. Right. Like okay, you, we can get all the kids in school. We I mean, get 50 kids per teacher, mm-hmm. but what type of education are they going to get? And so what kind of care? When it comes to this level of healthcare that, you know, you need that intimate interaction for long periods of time in order to not just see but maintain
1: yeah. the shift. I mean, it, it really helped me think outside the box so that I was really had to let go of control of a lot of the therapy. And I was already doing this, but I, I increased it in the sense that I had the other kids be models for each other more. Oh,
0: that's great. So that they,
1: it empowered them to not to know. I have this thing that, that is really great that I can do really well, even though I'm working on this and I'm going to, I'm going to support my, my friend over here who doesn't have this thing that I'm really great at while they support me with this other thing. Their
0: ability to empathize yeah, because they're going through it. That's really, so that
1: was, I increased that all the more, but even then there's this like sweet spot of small groups that as soon as you kind of pass that, Especially if you're doing thirty minute to forty five minute sessions, it it's, it gets to a point where they're just not getting enough practice. No. Even when you're doing those types of strategies, of like let's model for each other and like let's get movement breaks in, because remember these are little kids; they need to move around too and keep it fun. And you know we're playing games and things. So um, so yeah, know that was really challenging. And then having the poverty and neglect and abuse cases were really tricky. One of the one of the kiddos that I still think about to this day that um, I still am like I wonder where he's at right now uh, he had all of that he had um, el- every service provider was seeing him including me he had a lot of stuff going on in his home life uh, he DCFS the child and family services were called for his family multiple times um, and it wasn't direct abuse. It was more like it was more the neglect in the sense that like his parents were like one of them was a drug addict, um, was very loving but was just all over the place. He had siblings that also had special capacities and needs and things and, um, and he w- had ADD because his mom had, was on cocaine when was pregnant with him. Mm-hmm. So here she is and she's, she's off of drugs I think at this point when I meet her. But she had definitely been on drugs still when she was pregnant with his younger sibling and who we got to meet as well. And so all these constellation of things were going on. And and mom was very hesitant to look at drugs again for him to mitigate the the attentional difficulties, which I get. She's like, I don't want him to be addicted to drugs like I was, which might have caused it and da-da-da. And within a year, not even, but we already saw pretty much Paris pretty quickly, but within a year... He was doing really well academically. He would the teachers. He had a phenomenal uh, general education teacher. His classroom teacher was great about letting him move when he needed to move and not trying to restrict him to only sitting.
0: That's great.
1: Um, while also holding him accountable to everything else, the other kids had to do. That while seems those like Lehman an issue. Breaks.
0: With people that aren't familiar, yeah. That it's just like, oh, okay. Well, this is just part of. And, and
1: he's it. so smart yeah. and so sweet. And artistic, and like I'm thinking about it, I'm gonna start crying. <laughs> um, it was one of those cases that, like, when we first met him, the whole team met him, and we were like, "Holy cow! Where do we start with this family and with this kid?" Sure. And it ended up being that he he just blew us all away, everybody's expectations and projections. And That's and by the time I left the school, he wasn't requiring any speech and language services anymore. Holy and my. that was then, you know, that was still the I think second or third grade, and he had come in at kindergarten or something. So within like two years or something—that's incredible. Um, maybe three max, and it was just this amazing thing. And then his sister was also in this in this in the system and getting special education services. By the time he was aging out, and he was like all about being a big brother to her and yeah. like showing her the ropes and wow. like and just feeling really like I got this and I got you, and so let's go have fun at school together. And and he didn't feel like less than and he didn't feel like he couldn't succeed he was just
0: yeah it went so far beyond that it went beyond the I can now take care of myself yeah and And now I can contribute to others exactly that confidence blossomed into something beautiful for other people and how many more people throughout his life is that gonna affect
1: yeah yeah that's
0: incredible and you're doing all of this while like you had mentioned being just (laughs) Sick as sick can be, yeah. non stop, back to back, and you're dealing with these ever increasing caseloads. So how did that timeline work in with your transition? And did that did that play at all into the decision to get out? I think that's Yeah, yeah.
1: absolutely. Um I really I knew something else was possible. I knew something better for me personally, professionally, and for education was possible. And I still believe that. Like, every day I'm looking and I wake up thinking about these kids. <laughs> and I go to sleep thinking about these kids in the world and, you know, what we're choosing and to create for them and with them. And so those steps when I was looking at leaving, I was already at like the three-year mark. I was like, I was seeing the writing on the wall and I was like, what's next? I'm going to do my five years at least. I'd made that demand of myself and promised myself. And I was like, but I knew that as much as I went in being like, I thought I was going to be a career school speech-language pathologist. I was like, there's something else here for me to create. And so I started looking at options and investigated uh, the possibility of being an early intervention provider, which is when you see children from birth to three.
0: So what to go into that. Like... I think it's so easy for people to get trapped and locked into something like you. is just such a perfect example of somebody that you have this very, uh, as Liam Neeson would say, very specific set of skills. A certain set of skills.
1: So, I really want have, the Liam Neeson it.
0: accent, though. I know. I gotta have no, it. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, so you you have all this training, and not, not only do you have the training, you have something that's... Considered to be even more important, you have hands-on real-world experience, Mm -hmm. right, doing this. Um, I think it's easy for people to get trapped in, especially something like public schools, where it's like, well, this is is where it's done.
1: Well, that and also, like, in Chicago in particular, they call it the golden handcuffs. Because compared to the other school districts, they'll pay you a lot more. But then mm-hmm. you deal with a lot more stuff. Right. You deal with a lot more stressors, you know. There's a
0: smart way to incentivize getting people in, but... Yeah.
1: And so a lot of people, they're like, "Oh, if I leave, I'm going to get a pay cut. And yeah. I was like, well, is that worth your sanity? Is that yeah. worth your health? Because then that money that you're getting, are you actually able to enjoy it?
0: What are you doing with it? Like, are yeah. you going
1: on vacation? Are you able to save money? You're are you the able therapy. to... You're buying more <laughs> yeah. wine, like my, yeah, true. you know, and going to therapy. Like I have yeah. colleagues that send me photos of their shopping carts, and they're full of alcohols. Like, there's your money. That is the golden handcuffs, right yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. So, how
0: cyclical is that? Yeah, absolutely, that quality of life. Um, but they so, get scared. So, you're yeah, and that's 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 a huge part of all of this is yeah. is that willingness to take risk, mm-hmm. right? And so, what what was there? You're at the edge. Right, like you're 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 dealing.
1: It was before the edge, so yeah, at the okay. three year mark, I was like, I'm really sick, I'm really in pain. I'm yeah. doing all these interventions outside for myself personally with my health. I'm seeing that the caseloads are just getting higher, and I'm also like supervising a paraprofessional on top of that, and being sent off to do evaluation. So what what's that going to look like? And I was looking at all these other settings, like oh, hospital and. Okay. And rehab and and home base and and I and I went back to that question like okay well what's what would I really like to create like you were asking like what is this what's actually at the root here and I was like I want to go back to actually like making a change at the school system level so let me go to where the parents are where are the parents where are the people that affect this oh it's when they are younger in the early intervention ages and
0: so you were able to find because there's not a
1: Every state has some type of inter- okay, so early there, intervention so there, there, program. So there's
0: a program that is set up by the state yeah. that you can get enrolled into. Yes. So you were able to find that for Illinois. Yes. Okay.
1: Yeah, and then I, it's an additional certification. So that national one I talked about yeah. through ASHA only covers year three up. Year three to death.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: So I had to do additional training and do another certification. For specifically to,
0: for early intervention.
1: for do, To do the birth to three, yeah. Oh, wow. Because there's some considerations with that age population that don't apply to the rest. Um And not to mention the whole looking at it as a constellation with like the child within the family. Yeah. Instead of just in isolation like in a school, which you don't really do that in a school. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like a... Like an illusion, really, that they right. that it's even a separate like oh let's look at the kid with it's separate from everything else. But it's very much a priority in early intervention to look at the child through the through the scope of the family, and to the point that instead of an individualized education plan, which is what they do in schools, okay. they do an individualized family plan. Oh, that's smart. family services plan. Yeah. I You can F- F- just tell F-
0: even just through the through your own jargon, yeah, you know, just where the priorities are. It yeah was different programs
1: so but i definitely had the concerns coming up of like oh crap you know here's all my experience at schools am i going to be able to use it in this completely different setting yeah like is this am i going to start from scratch yeah cuz in grad school there are people who who chose the track for early intervention in grad school so you could have just done that track or you can done you could do school age track or you could do adult track
0: so even though you found something that clicked Mm -hmm. in your mind and you're like this is this is where i need to be to make the difference yeah you still have that fear and so and it's it's i think it's easy for people to look at you now and that you've already made that shift and change and they're able to say oh you were lucky or that was that was an easy transition for you Mm -mm. because you did it and you were successful so it couldn't have been hard yeah you already did it like And they don't, courage is a muscle, and a muscle that is flexed, like, people that are courageous are not people who are unafraid, Mm -hmm. they're people who step up and make those decisions in the face of fear, and so that, that is a big misconception that, I'm glad that you're here, that you, we can prove that that's the case, you made it, you had to step up and make this decision in the face of self-doubt can I do it my guilt
1: be... that was the other big thing, oh, interesting um what
0: get guilt for uh, the kids
1: you're leaving behind at the schools or in the, in the teachers oh like yeah. so there's it's almost like survivor guilt yeah like they were still you be, have... it, you're they're gonna be in the trenches still yeah. dealing with all of these
0: without one, an additional asset and yeah I mean
1: it was weekly that I was getting messages from my colleagues after I left like for about at least the first year if not longer wow. like it they were like oh my god you got out right when you were supposed to I don't know what like, like how you did it you must have known because literally I left the June of 2011 and that next fall was the first strike in the history of CPS in 20 oh, years
0: Wow
1: and I saw it coming yeah. <laughs> but also for me it was like it wasn't so much like I knew for sure it was a strike I was like something big's happening and that like I, It's not going to work for me, and I need to go now as soon as possible. Again, that's a
0: perfect example of someone saying like, "Oh, you're so lucky that you got out when you did." Like, no, you you were paying attention to the writing on the wall. Yeah, people aren't going to step up. Like, if you're in a niche field, you're in any field, Mm -hmm. and you're paying attention to things Mm -hmm. outside of what you're directly dealing with, like what's happening with your organization as a whole. Yeah, then you can you can at least get a feel for those kinds of things and you can make choices to help dictate your future. And you, and not only did you do that, but you did it in a way that was more self-empowerful. We did it. We made it to the end of the first episode. Thank you so much for listening all the way through. I really appreciate it. I hope that you got as much out of it as we put into it, given it, we had a lot of fun. Um, but this is just the first part, and I don't know which part is better. I had so much fun recording the whole thing, and Siris and I really had a blast. So if you like what you heard in the first part, I really feel like the second part just gets better and is even more motivational and has even more value to it. So please tune in next week for part two of the premiere episode for Burn Your Boat's interview with Ceres Rivas.